Hey guys, this is Bruce from Printavo, Simple Shop Managing Software. This is our Print Hustlers podcast. We're really excited because we've got a special guest that stopped by. He's in Chicago, John Weiss from New Buffalo Shirt Company. How you doing? <laughs> so I actually met John on the rock trip out to Portugal where I just started poking his brain about anything I could possibly get my hands on because John just has so much good experience. But you stopped by in Chicago, which is really nice because your daughter lives here, which is a crazy coincidence. I wanted to quickly tell like your story. I know you've got about 20 minutes or so, but just some things that, that can help other shops as well as you have just such a breadth of experience. So first, John, how did you even get into screen printing? <laughs> well, I started screen printing in 1968. Um, my grandfather was an immigrant from Poland. Uh-huh. He was an embellisher. He was a he was a sewing embellisher. So chenilles and Swiss embroideries and and everything. School award letters and jackets back in the '60s. And uh, he was a bowler and he did a lot of uh, work for the bowling leagues. And soon they wanted way more stuff on the back of their bowling shirts than than what he could sew. So we started screen printing. It was we could do logo reproduction in single color. And uh, that's kind of how I got into it. Fast forwarding, and I'm going to jump over a bunch of stuff, but fast forwarding, what was the largest size that you grew your shop to? I grew my shop to 27 automatics, uh, with uh, 12 being in uh, western New York and 15 in Honduras. And then how was that growth fuel? Was it financing? Was it just reinvesting back in over and over? What? It was always personally financed, mm-hmm. the single signature, you know, with bank, lots of risk. Uh-huh. Um, but there were times that the business was doing phenomenally well, so it was it was self-financing at that point. And then you sold this company, right? I sold the company in June of 2013 to Gildan. So what was that process like? Like, why do you, why did you want to sell? What was the, what was that point? Well, in the process, my domestic company was doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at an opportunity because uh, back in the early 2000s, um, one of my biggest clients was Disney, and they decided to get out of the retail business. And when they decided to get out of the retail business, they uh, licensed out to Children's Place. Mm-hmm and Children's Place was an expert at offshore uh, sourcing and I lost lost close to 11 million dollars of business in about a 90-day process. Me and my partners uh, on the creative side were looking at this and and I was then given an opportunity to uh, go to Honduras and check some things out. I got very lucky because I built a hundred thousand square foot facility in, in, in Honduras with not a client but uniquely at the same time, uh, Children's Place went bad on Disney. Disney took the brand back and we got back in. It was it was just a stroke of luck that we got back in with Disney. So you, wait, so you built the Honduras facility, no orders were coming in. No. What, I mean, what, why? I was dear friends, still am very dear friends with uh, the uh, CEO of Anvil Network who uh-huh. was doing all of my private label work. 
um, for my domestic company, and I went down there, and we had a plan on on, on growing and becoming the uh, biggest private label supplier in the hemisphere. Um, you know, I had Disney, he had Nike, Adidas. He was making blanks. They all wanted a, a, a full a vertical full, full solution, and and. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't think about things too much. I jump and then worry about it, how I'm going to make it work later. So I actually, back in, it might have been 2006, went to Honduras for the first time. Uh, went from Honduras to an SGAI show in Orlando. Uh, met somebody who had run the company, who had years of experience in, in, in Honduras, named Dale Scott. We met at the show, we had co cocktails, we shook. Three months later, we signed contract, and a month later we were in the ground, and we were open about 12 months after that. Uh, the unfortunate part is we were down there to build a sourcing, full-service sourcing model for Quicksilver and Billabong. Mm -hmm. um, the unfortunate part is the day I opened, June, January 11th of 2008, we were right in the middle of a great recession, and wow. most of the people who were my contacts at Quicksilver we're actually let go, uh -huh. uh, so that didn't work really well. But luckily enough, you know, Disney came back, and uh, so we started out doing Disney and, and and kept growing and growing and growing. Huge recession. What was that like? I mean, you know, going through that, you had the domestic facility. You just opened the Honduras one. It was a bit stressful. The thought of my domestic facility not being able to help out mm -hmm. in the growth, uh, you know, we, hey, look, it's business. It's all about timing, and sometimes you can control it, and sometimes you can't, you know. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're young enough, I was a little bit older at the time, but still very aggressive, you know, you don't, you know what they say, if you, if you don't like risk, then go work for somebody. If you love risk, then work for yourself. Mm -hmm. And we always, you know, we made decisions, and I was taught as a youth that no decision is a bad decision. You know, the bad ones, you just have to work twice as hard to make them work. And so we did, and, 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 and we worked hard, but, you know, there were so many issues in off operating offshore that... Like what? Uh, labor's cheap, utilities are incredibly high. My mm -hmm. utilities in Honduras were five times the size of my utilities in New York. Wow. My labor was good, you know, but there were all kinds of problems. We had political problems in Honduras. We had, uh, during my tenure down there, we had an unbelievable spike in cotton futures where cotton went from mid-70s to well over $2 a pound. Uh -huh. You know, clients getting freaked out. You know, I had a pretty big client list down. Well, I didn't have a big client list, but the clients that I worked with were the top in global branding, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, and Disney, you know, those are big, big clients to be working with, very well versed at international sourcing, cost of materials, it, it, it's tough. Did you ever live in Honduras while this facility is going up? Or? I live part-time, I'd spend 35 or 40% of my year down there. Mm -hmm. You know, lessons learned from that whole experience, it, would you have gone back and done something different? or? I never have any regrets. <laughs> you, I, know, you know, I, 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 I'll tell you, it was a remark. Whether it was profitable or not, in, for my experience and my knowledge, it was a great lesson. Mm -hmm. I got to meet some phenomenal people who I still communicate with the weekly now. Great, hardworking Central American people. My heart's in Central America. You know, I spend my winters in Central America. So 
I understand the culture and I, I just fell in love with the culture and the people. Sure. That's really awesome. And then that's running a little bit more forward, but now you, you got back in. Yeah, I got this. Tell me about that. Well, you know, one's fear of selling company and retiring. I can honestly say it was the hardest transition that I've ever had in my life. And I was very worried that, you know, I always tell people a story that I had a very well-known facility in New York and, and the people were extremely well-trained and, and very loyal. And the other big printers were flying into town wanting to, when they heard that, you know, Gildan was buying my company and that we were shutting down my domestic facility, the big players were offering unbelievable deals. Come work for us for a month, we'll pay everything. You know, these are floor workers. Mm -hmm. We'll pay your expenses, we'll pay your food, we'll, and if you like it, you can stay. You have an, a, a job. And, and two very large companies came and did presentations because me and my, you know, I had, 227 domestic employees, so I wanted to make sure with my uh, director of HR that everybody was getting a fair shake. Through that process, managers and floor workers were getting offers, and here the owner of that company was sitting there. Everybody thought, ah, well, he hit the lottery, he's done. My phone never rang, and I was afraid that going from managing over a thousand employees globally to retirement, there was going to be a huge void in my life. So one of my old managers uh, inquired whether I'd like to get back into it. They didn't want to leave, and, and, and you know there was still a base of good workers in Buffalo, New York, and, and I said, sure, this is what I'll do for mm -hmm. the company. Because I was kind of looking for a bridge between working and retirement. And so we started up New Buffalo Shirt 2.0. We used to be New Buffalo Shirt Factory, but we, we changed in 2.0 to be just New Buffalo Shirt because we're truly not a factory. You know, I have two automatics, uh, totally different business model. We call ourselves boutique screen printers. It's, been, it's just been a ball. I've been, you know, I made a mistake and, you know, through the years I probably should have been the lead sales guy for my company, but I love production management and solving problems. And my domestic factory was in the rock and roll business, and I thought I was a rock star. And <laughs> I loved the chaos. I used to love hot market uh, when I worked in the sports business and doing Super Bowls and Stanley Cups. And I loved that quick turn. And boy, you know what? Getting the rock and roll printing and every day's like that. And it was fascinating. It was always trying to solve a problem, a production problem, and I, and I really love that. But my focus should have really been on sales and marketing. Got it. And that's what I uh, currently do now. How did you get into the whole, I mean, you have so many stories in the rock and roll space and in the sports space. How did you network into that? Well, for people who don't know me, uh, back in the 80s, uh, I, I can tell a quick story. Um, I read an article in the early 80s about production and art. And my company in the early 80s was just maybe one automatic, maybe two, doing a little bit of contract work, really didn't do a lot of design, you know. I am a Harley enthusiast, I've been riding Harleys since I've been like 16 years old. And prior to Harley being a, a licensed trademark, I used to do a lot of shirts, a lot of custom shirts, 100 shirt runs for the local uh, Harley shop. Yeah. Harley shop. Somewhere around 82, Harley became a licensed trademark and I could no longer service that business. But I noticed 
that somebody was doing some incredible screen printing. Mm -hmm. And that company, so when Harley became a licensed trademark, they worked with three companies. Uh, R.K. Stratman, still a Harley licensee. Uh, Holobet, still a Harley licensee. And which is now uh, VF. No, it's actually Fanatics now. Um, and a company called 3D Emblem in, in, in Fort Worth, Texas. The stuff that was coming out of 3D Emblem was, was beyond imagination. And when I'd go in the Harley shops, I'd make the uh, owner of the shop pull down the shirts. I never bought one, I just had a look at it, you sure. know? And he told me that that was created by a, a, a local artist named Dave Gardner, who wasn't really local, but from the area. And I was just fascinated about the way he laid down color. It was just, uh, it was just incredible. Fast forward to 1988, I'm sitting, I get a call, it's a guy on the line, he says, hey, I'm a retired artist, screen print artist, and I just moved back to the area, and uh, I'm looking for a gig. I got your name from uh, the industry because you're one of the few people in town that have an automatic press. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Never told me his name. He said, you know, I used to uh, work in Fort Worth for a while, and, and then uh, most recently I was up in Wisconsin, and because I knew of the licensees and I knew of their locations, I'm like, oh my God. And by the way, I happened to be wearing a Harley shirt that day that Dave Gardner had created. And I said, so tell me your name. And he said, well, I'm Dave Gardner, and I almost fell off my chair. I'm like, oh my God, I'm your biggest fan. We need to be together. <laughs> and so we, we, we got together. And he showed me his stuff, which I was very familiar with, and wanted to know what licenses I had. And, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I don't have anything. Yeah. I don't have anything, you know? But we found we had, we shared uh, mutual passions, and we decided to partner up. I couldn't afford his talent, but I figured out a way to do it. How? You know? How? Yeah. Um, I went and just borrowed the money from local oh. credit unions because I saw this unbelievable talent. So Got our it. first thing is we were going to go and get ourselves a license at the NFL. Uh -huh. So Dave, the Raiders were then in L.A. It was 1988, and Dave went home, took a photograph of himself. He's, a, he's an unbelievable artist. And, and then airbrushed that photograph, and then spent seven days in a dark room separating that photograph. Wow. This was before Photoshop. And he brought it in, and we put it up on a six-color gauntlet. It needed a flash. We put six, six screens in, mm -hmm. but had the flash in the unload station. And I ran two shirts, and I was floored. I couldn't believe, because prior to that I was just printing vector artwork with sure. solid underbase. Absolutely floored. It was about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. By the time I left there, I was just totally <laughs> crazy. And I took the shirt home, and I woke up my wife, and I said, we're going to be millionaires. Look at this. You know, I knew his talent, and I knew my ability to kind of get it out there. So we went to the NFL, and... Uh, went to try and get a license and were laughed out of the offices, literally laughed out of the offices. We were scolded. You brought the shirt too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we had no right being there. However, when How I How did you even get a meeting? A friend got me a meeting. Oh, okay. A friend got me a meeting. He had a license uh -huh. and, and, and so he came in and I remember the, the director of licensing was like, you've never paid me a penny of royalty and now you want to expand your license. And in theory, get the hell out of here. But as we were leaving, the, the, the guy um, said, I want you to run this, your shirt, by our creative department. And I winked at Dave, and I said, I, and when we left, I said, I know we have something here. I, I just, 
knew it, you know. So we left, and, and because, again, we were both sports fans, the easiest license to obtain at the time was collegiate. So we went out, and we were able to secure 20 collegiate licenses, mm -hmm. you know, USC, University of Colorado. This is what, 89? Uh, probably closer to 89 now, yeah. yeah. And uh, we did our first show here. We did our first show at, at, at the uh, McCormick Center. Okay. And it was the NSGA show. And, and we were all excited. And we all stayed in a nice hotel, but there were eight of us in the same room, sleeping on the floor. We couldn't afford anything. We had a 10 by 10 booth. And we were so excited to get over to the convention center and see our location. Well, there were, there's two centers. And our location was in the basement of the secondary center, as far as you could get. Oh, wow. But we no were lucky luck. enough that somebody uh, for the show put our product, one of our shirts, in a showcase. So when we went to the show to do setup, we were like dejected young guys, you know, young 30-year-old guys who are like, wow, we worked so hard. Our location, we're not going to do any business. And I got to tell you, the doors opened and they were five deep. They had never seen printing like this mm -hmm. before. You know, the only industry that had ever seen printing like this was Harley-Davidson, but it was a small niche and nobody really saw it. So we took it out, we trademarked the, the, the name Intense Mascots, and we did a Harley version of Collegiate Mascots. At that show, I hired 52 sales reps. I wrote $1.3 million worth of business, and I was on my way. Wow. Um, we left, and, and we got noticed. So what happened from there? From there, there was an art director, there was a big sports licensing company run by really young guys. And, and let me backtrack a minute. You know, when, when, when we did the first shirt, I took it to the big guys. Mm -hmm. I took it at that time. The big guy's logo was Trench Manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, there was Logo Athletic, up in, or Logo 7 at the time, up in Indianapolis. There was uh, Nutmeg Mills, in, uh, which now is VF Imageware in Tampa. And I went to all of those guys with this proposition of design separation and screen print, but I wanted $1.50 a print, and they said we only pay 50 cents. So that's what drove us back into getting the college licenses. Mm -hmm. And, and, and of course, the one that I left out was Salem Sports, we're up in Salem, New Hampshire. So at our first show in 1989, somebody had seen us, the art director for Salem Sports had seen us, went to the owner and said, if you don't do a deal with these guys, they may put us out of business, they're that good. So, you know, from 89 to 90, I had finally, uh, through a joint venture partnership with the quarterback, Jim Kelly, got to the NFL got my own NFL license. It was 1990. We were back in Chicago ready to premiere, you know, our NFL line and the director of licensing for NFL said you don't have a, a rock solid deal with Jim and until you sign a rock solid, uh, a rock solid uh, deal with Jim, there are some things that I really don't care to get into. Uh, you're not going to get a license. Mm -hmm. At that time, right down on Wacker, I was at a hotel and Salem wanted to make a deal. Said I got one more meeting to go to, but stay tuned. And I went to another meeting in, in trying to find uh, a, a partner to uh, to partner up with, and that meeting didn't go well. And I went back to the Salem booth at the McCormick Center, and I said, "If you want a deal, let's sign a deal right now." And I signed at the time a two-year, half a million-dollar contract print deal where the owner, Kyle Nagel of Salem Sports, where it says, I think I'll do that amount of business in three months. And we bet. 
and I lost the bet because he did. That led to contract after contract after contract. So what I had to do is I had a process and I had capacity, but I didn't have any distribution. And Salem uh, was at the top of the game. I believe the number was in 1991 that we accounted for about $56 million worth of business. And the business grew so fast that I was buying a press every month and a half. You know, wow. so I ended up buying six presses that year. That's incredible. Um, it, and and you know what? And and you know, it's kind of funny being here in Chicago because I think it was '92 or '93 before Michael Jordan became the true Air Jordan guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Salem Sportswear. The Bulls were on a run. Obviously, they run. You know, this was the third year, the three-peat year, mm -hmm. the Chicago Bulls. Salem Sportswear had the official locker room T-shirt. They were famous for caricatures, so everybody wore at the parade the the world champion locker room white T-shirt, except Michael. And Michael wore my shirt, and that week we sold two hundred eighty-seven thousand shirts. <laughs> oh, I God. can't tell you how we got it done in the right. ten days, but we got it done. Yeah. I, I can't even tell you. You know, I mean, we worked nonstop. Twenty-four hours a day. Twenty-four hours a day. But to go back to the original question, how did I market it? Through the industry, you know, I got involved with Don Newman at Stretch Devices. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of R&D on roller frame high tension printing. In return, Don gave me great exposure, and people just saw it. You know, so by 1994, I had already amassed 20 golden squeegees. You know, to to go back a little bit, you know, in all the magazines that were interviewing us, they asked me really what I was doing. They said, well, you're kind of doing four-color process. And I said, it's really not four-color process. It's really simulated process. They published it. That's what it becomes. So now everybody in the industry knows that, you know, printing high opaque inks with multiple colors on, on dark garments is referred to as simulated process. We, we invented it, and, and we named it, actually. So you spent a lot of time, it seems, on improving the craft. It wasn't just... Well, when Dave came to me, it was a very slow 300 shirts an hour process. Mm -hmm. The people that he worked with were not advanced in, in, in roller frames, high tension printing, mm -hmm. everything needed to be double stroked, you know, it was a whole different process. Mm -hmm. His inks that he was used to using with Hollaback and 3D Emblem, I didn't use. We got very involved with both at, at that particular time, Rutland, developing our own bases and our own inks and everything. And I got this thing up to well over 800 shirts an hour. So it was my understanding of the screen print industry and the screen print process and Dave's understanding of the creative and separative separation process that uh, made this team like we, we were referred to as the Lennon and McCartney of the screen printing business. Both Dave and I are listed as top 25 most influential people in the industry in the last century or something in the 90s. It was fun. We That's had exciting. groupies at shows. It was <laughs> it was awesome. You know, it was really awesome. And and because of the broad width of distribution that Salem Sportswear had, the next phase of my life kicked in. The music merchandisers had seen it, and they came to me. What all the bands and the? Well, the first guy to come to me when they saw, I think in ninety, we won a lot of awards, but I think in nineteen ninety four. We won Screen Printer of the Year, which was the best award we ever won because it was voted on by the industry, by screen printers. And the screen printers unanimously said, 
New Buffalo is the best. And, and Press Magazine named the Screen Printer of the Year. And I think they had a circulation of about a million five magazines, and they split the cover. And they said it's the first time the work was so spectacular that 750,000 went out with one cover and 750,000 went out with another cover, and people were reading. So my first uh, music act was actually simultaneously with signing on with the Del Ferrano, who was the main originator of Winterland Studios, the king of rock and roll, you know, because, you know, through my whole life, I wasn't complete unless I was a rock and roll printer, you know, mm -hmm. and he came courting, and I signed on with him, and then other, you know, that wasn't a, a, a really good contract, so we, we said we'd work contract free, because I didn't want exclusivity. You know, the other story I like to tell is my best cold call, because we really didn't have a sales force, we had a reputation. You know, and I got called in 1996 by somebody going, you have no idea who I am, but I have a band you might want to work with. And I said, who's the band? And they said, the Rolling Stones. And I was on a plane the next day making a deal, and uh, we ended up doing six, seven tours with the Stones. Unbelievable. So do you feel like a lot of this growth happened because you were so invested in like the R&D of screen printing, right? I mean, you talk about diving deeper into the art process. I think we were successful because it was early on, mm -hmm. it was nobody would spend the time. I'm telling you, it would take days, three to five days in a dark room uh -huh. doing cutting ruby lists and doing, you know, exposure separations. You know, it would, he understood it better. You know, where this thing started to get diluted in the mid 90s was the advent of Photoshop. Mm -hmm. we, you know, and then they added advent of, of everybody else. You know, hey, look, people were doing great work. New Buffalo was doing simulated process. Andy Anderson was doing four-color process. Mark Coudre was doing his version. We all had our own versions, you know. But for me, simulated process, I could do blindfold. It was very easy. Mm -hmm. It didn't require the technology that, you know, because I'm an artist. I'm not a technician. So uh, I put stuff on press. I put ink in screens and hope they turn out. Most times they do, and when I make a mistake, I figure out how to turn around and market that. So as a printer now then, as there's more technology to reduce the, the barrier of entry like that, how do you feel like someone should compete? Like, what is their competitive advantage? You know what? I break it down into, into price, service, and quality. You can rank them any way. My business is built around service, quality, and price. So I go in the opposite. I swim in a different stream and I'm not a price-driven company anymore. I used to be, used to be, because I had such a tremendous, you know, my capacity was three million prints a month, but uh -huh. I had to fill it, you know, and then, then you, you know, you, take you work on a lower margin when you have to fill it with volume, but, you know, that wasn't really the best way to go, and now we're a small boutique that, number one, number one is delivering on time, and number two is delivering quality on time, and then wherever the price is, 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 is a number three, and it works. You have to just find the client base that, that embraces your business philosophies. So a lot of shops, and you talk about this a lot with the pricing, which is interesting because a lot of shops try to compete the other way, right? Like you said, you do the opposite. So they're price first, right, to attract the business. But there are shops that have to be price first because they didn't put a lot of, uh, of effort into becoming great. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, you know I, I see great screen printers out there, young screen printers, but they are 
a very small percentage of the industry. Everybody else is just slapping ink on shirts right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm shocked when a client will bring in a shirt to match that that's acceptable. I'm really shocked, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I think they can do a better job. So do you think that <clears throat> it's important to set that price higher up front and then do like you're doing and really deliver? Well, I think, A, in, in any business, you have to have a quality product to justify cost, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there are different models for everybody. Some people are in business because they want to be an entrepreneur and it, it affords them a decent lifestyle. Other people want to be in there to drive margin, resell, do whatever they want to do, you know. The industry is full of a number of different theories. I find that, you know what, in, in being in Portugal and talking to all those people, we had a group of, of screen print artists that just wanted to make a living and mm -hmm. be their own bosses, mm -hmm. you know, and and very interested in, in like your questions. How do I, what's the differentiator? You know, how do I get out of being a commodity? Mm -hmm. Because when I was big, I was a commodity factory. You know, what? boom, 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 printing millions of shirts a month. I didn't I didn't really like that. It, it took me out of the art side of screen printing and put me into a different realm that I wasn't really comfortable in. So you have a brand now in kind of a, a base that then I feel like helped you to be able to set your price not as a bottom feeder. Somebody who's just really getting going, first auto, second auto type area, any advice for them to also be able to not be a bottom well, feeder with that price? Yeah, the advice that I'd have for them is slow and controlled growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I hit a home run because I got to build a major company making huge dollars. You know, I mean, we were making a lot of money because what we did, nobody could do. And we, you know, Dave and I, after we got known, went to do a presentation at the WWE or the WWF or whoever they are. And we did this presentation, and we were in a big boardroom, and people were, this guy's great. And we gave him the price, and they said, uh, you got to do it for this. And we got up and walked out. We had no problem walking out. We knew what we had was special, and we held out until everybody else, you know. And we could do that right up to the mid-'90s. But as Photoshop started making things easier and easier and the competition started to get closer and closer, we definitely, by 96, we were a commodity. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was doing it. Potentially not as well as us, but there were people who set the bar. You have that in every business, you know. Unfortunately, in the screen print business, because of the way that the distribution model is set up, and that anybody can, in theory, although they'll disagree with me, walk in and buy shirts from Alpha, you know your cost of goods. I don't know another business where my clients come in and know what my shirts cost sure. and what you know, I should be printing right. for. You know, I don't go into a... You've got a pillowcase or uh, I don't go into a, a, a restaurant or? and say, well I, well, I could. You know, I know that steak, or better yet, you know, what does a restaurant normally work on? two, three times cost of wine, but I can't negotiate that. Mm -hmm. I know that $80 bottle of wine was really 20 but, you know, in, in the screen print business, for some reason, everybody knows your, your back-end costs. So it gets very hard. So, you know, my advice is do something and do it well. And it doesn't mean that you're the best printer in the world, but if you're not the best printer in the world, then be the best guy to service that business. And I think that inherently is where all these online companies have popped up custom ink and you know what it's an easy 
solution for something. Not cheap, but an easy solution. Not the best quality, whether it's digital or screen print, but it's easy. That's how they made their money. Mm -hmm. right? They serviced. They had an easy. You know, they 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 found they found that if they didn't really know screen printing, they knew the front end better than anybody, and they and they did it well. So, kind of branching a little bit more deeply into that, the contract pricing piece of it. You, you've mentioned this a few times where you're just almost shocked at what some contract printers charge. I don't believe, why we're talking, right? I don't believe screen printers have enough information mm -hmm. to understand what their true costs are. Uh -huh. You know, uh, I had a great opportunity because, you know, I sold the Gildan and worked with some of the best production engineers in the world to really deep dive and understand cost and and so by doing that that reinforced I knew what I could print for with labor at a dollar eighty and and I know what's possible with domestic labor so you know what it, it you know at that particular time you get a big job it's just truly ease never having to break down the press never looking you, you know what look this is a custom business it should never be flatline pricing. There's not another business model out there. Whether I'm buying custom printed boxes, whether I'm buying custom printed posters, mm -hmm. every other print business is based on number of colors and quantity. Mm -hmm. And that's how it should be priced. Big contracts, look, we're paying 40 cents a shirt, 50 cents a shirt, this is what we pay. You know, oh, and we want to roll that out. So if you do 200, it's 50 cents. But if I do 2,000, it's 50 cents. Well, if there's no break, I would just run my business doing 200s every day. And that's what happened in the music business. My minimums were 576. I would do the same job three times in one week, setting it up, taking it down, setting it up, taking it down, reclaiming screens, burning screens, because that was the minimum. And that's where they can get in. So why buy two thousand if I can get the same price for five hundred? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's where it kind of it, it, it kind of led to. It was it, it was madness. So we came back, and you know that. And, and here's the other thing too. The reason why I have volume discount is only because I amortize my upfront costs into that volume, and I'm very transparent with my clients. So that I don't have setup costs, you know. And I, but but in reality, if you had a business model that said I'm charging twenty dollars a color to set up, and this is my price range, and this is my price for 144 and 288, I I I can tell you, if I print one shirt or I print 1,000 shirts, they're the same price. It's my setup time that I need to amortize into my cost. That's why I have volume pricing. Mm -hmm. But in theory. It's no more expensive for me to print a thousand shirts than for me to print two thousand shirts if all my setup costs are exactly the same, right? And I get that up front. We just amortize it. It's just a better way. And 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 the, the you know the reason why I did it is because the business was so transparent to begin with. I didn't want people picking me apart, mm -hmm. and that's what they did. So if I was printing the fronts for sixty cents and the backs for fifty cents, and I had a setup cost of twenty dollars a screen. You know, my clients would come in and, hey, do me a favor. I know I'm under minimum, but can you waive? Oh, yeah, we'll waive it. And then you just, you might as well just be writing them checks. <laughs> Fair. Right? 
Last question before you got to go. Been through the industry for so many years now. Where do you think things are going? Oh boy, you know what? Good or bad? Just Again, I have to preface this answer by saying I'm a screen print artist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like all artists, we're very conservative rather than being progressive. You know uh -huh. what? Um, I like screen printing. Where do I see it going? I, I, I see it going digital. I prefer a hybrid solution, you know, but I know that digital's out there, that it's easy. I just think it's cookie cutter at that time. Prior to putting all my attention in to screen printing, you know, my company did screen print. You know, again, we go back to my base. My grandfather was a hand sewer. You know, not many people could do that. So when the first industry to really, you know, from an apparel standpoint, to really get uber automated mm -hmm. was the embroidery business. So if you look at embroidery when it went digital, meaning that you no longer had to do it by hand, you could punch a tape at the time, now you do disc, you know, everything reads off of it. So tell me, in the, in the embroidery business, who has an advantage? It's commoditized. Everybody could buy a machine, get a design, they do it at home, you know. That's what worries me about when the screen print industry totally converts to digital. And what worries me even more is then when does the client base start to get into their own stuff? So I always looked at one of my big clients was Ron John's Surf Shop. We did a lot of name drop. Obviously, from a digital perspective, name dropping becomes unbelievably easy. But Ron John's had to order 288 shirts with this name drop on it. And then two, you know, mm -hmm. Now you can get in there and you can do a name drop on, on 10 shirts. Sure. You know? So understanding that, when does Ron John's decide, I'm going to do it myself? You know, why not? And that, that worries me from an industry's perspective. When does the client base start to become their own manufacturers? Mm -hmm. So, you know. But I think we're ways away. <laughs> I'll be dead and gone. <laughs> I'll pass the torch. Got it. Awesome. Well, uh, John, I really appreciate spending the time with us today. Hey, this has been a lot of fun. I, 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 I was a bit worried about this, but... Uh, you know what? Invite me back. Yeah, of course. Of All course. Right. We always got another episode. I know you're always here in Chicago, too. So. Yeah.